Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we hear from Zainab Tufeki, a New York Times opinion writer, associate professor in the School of Information and Library Science at UNC, and a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. She discussed the social impact of technology and the advantages and shortcomings of its use in protest movements. The discussion was moderated by Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Speaker Series. My name is Nico Mealy. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center. For those of you who don't know, Zainab Tufeki is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, writes about the social impacts of technology. She's an associate professor at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina, a faculty associate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, and a former fellow at the Center for Internet Technology Policy at Princeton. Her research is all about politics, civics, movements, privacy and surveillance, as well as data and algorithms. She's originally from Turkey. She was a computer programmer by profession and academic training before turning her focus to the impact of technology on society and social change. She switched to social science, started calling herself a techno-sociologist. She's been published widely. I would encourage you to check out some of her recent pieces in the New York Times about everything from conspiracy theories in the internet in the case of the election to the hacking of uh, voting machines to how the internet saved Turkey's internet-hating president. Her forthcoming book from Yale University Press is tentatively titled Beautiful Tear Gas, The Ecstatic Fragile Politics of Networked Protest in the 21st Century. Zainab, welcome. Thank you. Great high energy. So I'll just get started. I know um, a lot of people with varied interests. I thought I would give mostly a talk about how I see digitally fueled social movements and their trajectories and what I see uh, in terms of what's going on. I am going to talk a lot about Turkey because that's going to be my go-to case study, but I'm drawing my experience from having studied other protest movements, uh, uprisings ranging from uh, the Arab uprisings, Arab Spring, uh, to occupy in the U.S. and some other countries. Obviously, it doesn't apply equally to everyone, but I'm going to try to draw some broad outlines. Also, I had started my forthcoming book uh, with my experience growing up under the post-coup military regime in 1980 in Turkey, and literally my second or first sentence was like, what if there had been a coup and there was an internet? <laughs> and uh, and then uh, you know I pretty much finished the book. I started like that. I ended some other way, and then I went to Turkey for a week of vacation because I was going to come back, write the epilogue, and be done. And I ended up live tweeting a coup <laughs> that was not in the plan. So I I believe there might be some questions about the coup uh, experience too, and I'm going to leave that mostly for the Q and A because I want to talk about the social movements, and I don't think, I hope not to have enough case studies of how to uh, have a coup during the age of the internet, but there's a lot to be said. So um, let me just sort of say, I, um, 
I believe in doing multi-level data. I look at big data analyses, but I also really rely on going, attending protests, and interviewing people. In the Gezi protests, I ended up formally interviewing uh, hundreds of people. Um, I even got have IRB approval for it. I called my school's IRB and cried. Said there's a social movement happening in my country, and this is what I study. You have to work with me and get us permission. So we, they work with me. In uh, 48 hours, we had IRB permission, and I also went to you know Tahrir Square during protests. Uh, I've you know interviewed, studied uh, many other protests as well. And personally, for me, I do grow up under the military regime, uh, and then the post-coup military, the, the area where there was very heavy censorship. And I started out as a technologist. I started out as a computer programmer. And I ended up very early on in my college career working at IBM, which before the internet came to Turkey. And it was this mind-blowing experience because we had one TV channel in Turkey and it had Little House on the Prairie and <laughs> Dallas because the military, you know, the post-military environment, they didn't want us watching news about Turkey, so we ended up with American soap operas, which made no sense. <laughs> uh, but I, at IBM, I got this experience of this, they had this intranet, this global intranet, which really changed, it blew my mind. It was like, oh my God, I can speak to people around the world without any intermediaries, gatekeepers, um, and I thought, this is going to change the world. This is going to change everything. And I turned to becoming, I switched from my original field, computer programming in college to sociology <laughs> and try to do this. This is why I made up a name for myself, technosociology. It's not necessary anymore, but back when we started doing this, it wasn't really done uh, to understand how the technologies were going to change everything. And I started out quite hopeful because for me, the ability to connect with the world was just very liberating, and I thought this is going to have this huge effect on social movements because globalization from below could finally happen. Uh, we know globalization had been happening for a long time, but it had been this more elite globalization or corporate globalization, and in 90s I started watching and participating in this globalization from below. The Zapatistas would uh, organize encuentros and have activists from all over the world you know, show up in Chiapas, and I'd go. It was kind of this very interesting, crazy period of um, seeing these things. So fa let's fast forward to these decade of digitally fueled movements where people started being able to use these technologies to do many different things. So let's, um, uh, I'm going to talk with an experience of a big movement, um, the anti-war movement in 2003 in the United States. Uh, if you remember, there were global protests around the world as well against the f about to happen uh, war in Iraq. And there was a big march in New York, which I went to. And after the march, the then president said, why should I listen to a focus group? Now, at the time, I was like, we're not a focus group. This is lots of people, uh, and I'm from the region, so I had my own reservations about why the war was a bad idea. Um, not that I was a fan of Saddam Hussein, of course not, but I thought this is really going to have awful effects in the area, so I was 
committed uh, and I was passionate about it and I was I felt insulted we're not a focus group but to be honest over the and the war happened despite this big um, so the next decade or so uh, and as I watch a lot of other movements I think that's actually a good question what does a social movement do that makes it do anything right what is the difference between couple hundred thousand people marching in um, New York or any place else versus some other couple hundred thousand people. What is the claim and what is the leverage on change? Um, and I started conceptualizing social movements. I started to try to get away from the protest as the thing that we analyze, but think of them instead as capacities that you signal through protests. So I'm drawing, I, the, with capacities, I'm kind of thinking at the way it's used in development economics, uh, the Amatristan conceptualization, the Nussbaum conceptualization, where you don't look at the output, but you look at the capacity expressed or signaled, if you go uh, think about the signaling theory, by the output. So when you think about a protest, you might just be looking at, you know, a million people marching. Instead, I started thinking, okay, what is the capacity expressed by these million people marching? And this really uh, dovetails with my question about what does digital technology change? So let's think about um, what digital technology changes for the capacity movements expressed. And I'm going to look at three kinds of capacities, narrative capacity, disruptive capacity, and electoral institutional capacity of movements. And when I say capacity, I'm talking also about leverage over power. So narrative capacity, by that I mean a social movement's ability to craft its own narrative and have its own framing and have its own point of view out there in the world. For the longest time, that was a real challenge. Um, like when I was growing up in Turkey, there was a, still is unfortunately, a large conflict in the Kurdish Southeast and for people like me who didn't have personal connections to it, the only narrative you heard was the government's. It's a bunch of terrorists. It's all you ever heard. Uh, and it was almost difficult to hear, even consider any other perspective on what was going on. Throughout their history, because the narrative capacity is very largely coupled with mass media's ability to craft that narrative, we've thought about the narrative capacity as something the mass media does. And Movements have spent an enormous amount of time, time and effort trying to influence mass media. Well, if you think about it, though, that's a conflation that no longer holds. You talk to any social media activists around, any activists around the world, they now have the capacity to craft their own counter-narrative, create a counter-public. You see this in the United States with Black Lives Matter right now. They're creating their own narrative, even though there are other narratives clashing they have this. So in Gezi Park protests, like many other countries uh, in Turkey, the corporate, the mass media is controlled, not as, not anymore, things have changed, but it used to be more the corporate bosses had large holdings, they did business with the government, so they kind of self-censored as a way to curry favor with the government. It was this indirect censorship, which is actually more effective than um, there was also direct censorship, a lot of it, but a lot of indirect censorship. So when the Giza protests broke out, 
and you had these, um, the spark isn't very important, the park isn't very important. It was a lot of concern about growing authoritarianism, mass media censorship, and uh, police brutality kind of brought this together. When the protests broke out, because the government wanted to raise and build a replica Ottoman barracks in a little park that's the last little park in the middle of the city next to the art district there was just sort of the spontaneous protest they wanted to pro uh, protect the park and then the uh, the police pepper sprayed these people middle of istanbul lots of pictures got around more people came so it was very small and i watched this kind of happen i wasn't there yet uh and then more people started coming for the media bosses that you were used to the self-censorship, all of a sudden they were frozen. Do they report on this? Do they not? You know, that they, they didn't have this exact guidance, so they started not reporting on it. Uh, meanwhile, everybody had this, and Turkey's internet censorship was there, but it was weak and easily circumventable and not that much. Uh, at one point, uh, I'm going to show, uh, I mean, the, so at one point, it was such a big story, the clashes, the CNN International was live from Taksim, saying clashes in the middle of Istanbul. CNN Turkey uh, was showing a documentary of penguins. So this is the picture. <laughs> <laughs> and the penguins, uh, I, I like penguins. I, would, I wish them well, and we're all concerned. But this picture created this, in, this went viral, because people are like, CNN International is live. And because this is Taksim, everybody just kept going, and they had started, you know. Um, after that, uh, what happened next is that every time something happened, people started uh, photoshopping penguins <laughs> into protests <laughs> to try to sort of mock the fact that mass media wasn't doing it. So basically, government censorship absolutely failed. Uh, it was all over everybody's phone, and then a million people almost showed up. So the narrative capacity change is very uh, distinct. <coughs> so let's talk about, and more examples you can have. Well, um, you, let's talk about the disruptive capacity, because this is, I think, overlooked, because I think we're more familiar with the narrative capacity change that came. So in November of 2011, in Egypt, large protests broke out uh, near Tahrir Square. There, It's this very large square and lots of streets, and one of them leads to the Ministry of Interior, which is not well liked, let's say, uh, for its role in torture and police brutality. And there's a street called Mohammed Mahmoud Street, so the protests are called the Mohammed Mahmoud protests. Um, there what had been a sit-in at Tahrir. It got broken up by police, and the police roughed up some families of people who had lost loved ones during the February, January early protests. So activists were really upset. They all showed up. Huge clashes. Weeks, uh, 40 or so dead. So not some small thing. Thousands of people injured. So during such protests, the protesters have taken to setting up field hospitals. These are not small field hospitals. I mean, if you have 40 dead, the kind of capacity you need um, and you started seeing on, there's 10 of them, or, or 11, and they have, you know, locations the, you know, in front of KFC. They call it the KFC hospital. Um, <laughs> the Omar Makram Mosque. Ha, uh, so th these uh, were established locations. 
So on Twitter, you started seeing these requests saying, we're out of betadine in, you know, blah, 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 and it would get retweeted, and we need more suture this, it would get retweeted, and then people would be confused. Did you get any? And then they'd be like, we need more nurses here. There was a lot of confusion about which hospital needed what. So as this happened, this 21-year-old pharmacy student in, um, at the time in a Gulf country, but from Egypt, was like, I can fix this. Okay, so he sent out this thing. This is just, just says test. It's one tweet. It says test. It's not retweeted. It's not seen because nobody knows this exists. Like he literally created this account in five minutes and said, let me fix this. And then they started pinging high profile people on the protest saying, we're going to fix this logistics problem. We're going to organize everything. He's not in Egypt. And a few people were like, uh-huh. And I, they, I don't remember, but they pinged me early on too because I was kind of tweeting about some stuff. Uh, so we had this short conversation. So I noticed them and I started watching them organize using Google Docs, Excel, spreadsheets, um, back channel conversations. They literally organized 10 field hospitals down to how many sutures were where and how much this and that was there, like to the tiniest thing. They started coordinating the shifts. By they, I mean four young people. Uh, only one of them in Cairo. One of them, she's about to get engaged, like she just got engaged, she's about to get married, and the way she tells me is like, she's like, all right, mom, I'm getting married, here, you do everything, and then just turns to her computer and disappears <laughs> into this project for however long it took, which is maybe 10 days of intense, and they were in different time zones, so they just slept around the clock. And they, the whole what's where and which doctor and who has betadine, everything disappeared from Twitter. It's completely organized. It's very transparent. You can like go to the Google spreadsheet and say, oh, this is what's going on. Anybody who needed anything just tweeted at them and said, we need more this and that. I'm just watching this with amazement because if you've ever been at a pre-digital protest or if you try to ever coordinate something before these phones or anything, this, this is why, you know, Russians speak Russian rather than Napoleon having succeeded. You know, their logistics is a crucial thing. So after this whole thing kind of died down, I went to these 20, they're all in their 20s, 21, 22, 4. I said, so do you have some, you know, training in logistics? And they're like, no. I'm like, do you know if you know Hitler's campaign against Moscow and why it failed? Have no clue. Uh, I said, what's your inspiration? What made you think you could do this? And he's like, hmm, um, cupcake store in Cairo was very good on Twitter. And I thought if you can, you know, sell cupcakes on Twitter, you can organize 10 field hospitals. <laughs> like, I'm glad you don't know any history because like, I wouldn't have dared <laughs> try this. Um, so what this means is that from zero to 100 miles an hour in logistic capacity takes very little. It takes so little. I have seen protesters around the world organize things that would have taken anybody else without digital technologies weeks and months. They can coordinate on the fly. Where's the police? They can figure things out. Now, I'm going to come back to this. This ends up having a twist. Now. The twist to all of this is, where's the electoral institutional capacity? Why is this not just a focus group? Why is Occupy, even though it had so much um, narrative capacity success, not also as successful, say, as 
you know, in the legislature, in policy. <coughs> and to understand that, you have to go back to one more thing, which is the current protest culture around the world, especially left movements, comes from this very participatory impulse, which absolutely predates the internet. You can take the Port Huron statement that uh, kind of predated the 68 protests in its participatory nature, a voice in our world, and you can take it to today's protests and people would think, oh, this was written yesterday. You would just have to change all the he's into he or she and then you would just, you know, you'd be fine. There are a few changes since then, thankfully, but uh, very participatory. And for example, in all these protests around the world, um, they set up libraries in their occupations. This is one of the pictures I took in Gezi Park protest. It's a librarian giving out books and he's got a clowny wig. Now, I mean, we're getting tear gassed every day. Uh, you know, why is there a library in the middle of all of this? Hong Kong protests, they set up a library. Occupy, at a library. Why are they setting up libraries? And I asked lots of people, I talked to lots of people. And my sense is that it is really an expression of exactly what these people are protesting, this sort of lack of voice, uh, this distaste with this world in which everybody's rushing around. I mean, these are very traditional protest reasons, right? Uh, the uh, libraries to people symbolize this non-commodified exchange of stuff that is expressive. It's not that you're, you know, the book is just the sort of expression of everything they hold sacred. It's intellectual, it's participatory, it's for free, and you're in a clown hat because the world is too serious and you're bringing some joy. This is not a minor thing. You know, in uh, especially political science approaches to protest, there's this free rider problem. Why do people protest if the result of a protest is a public good that we're all going to share? Why don't I just, you know, let some other people get tear gassed and let them win whatever it is going to win and nobody shows up. So this is uh, Olson's famous you know, collective action problem. Well, the answer is the protest is the reward. The protest itself is one of the most existentially jolting, fulfilling things these people are doing. And that participatory nature of it is not some afterthought to it. And getting tear gas is actually part almost revitalizing because unlike being <laughs> shot at, it's not going to kill you. You feel like you're going to die the first time and it's horrible. You can't breathe. But then somebody comes and picks you up and you don't die. And you learn that, A, you don't die. And some stranger is going to come pick you up at that moment. People want to protest in this very participatory manner because that's the reward. It's not something that you're trying to get out of like doing the dishes or something like that, that you would try to free ride and let your roommates do the dishes. It's not, this is a misunderstanding of what they really are. They're very joyful, even though they're not all happy. I watch people, you know, people got shot in the head with tear gas canisters. So it's not like it's a lightweight place, but it's a very existentially alive place. And there's great mistrust of institutions. They're there protesting because they do not think you can change this by voting. You can see this in any number of statistics you look around the world, great mistrust in institutions. So what happens, why, this, let's bring this to the question, why do these protests that have such narrative capacity and such um, disruptive capacity, coordinate on the fly, why do they have this boom-bust cycle, right? Because a lot of them go up, the Gezi protests go up, and they, you know, you're a million people in the streets, 
and then you see where th Turkey is. You see this in the Arab uprising. You see this elsewhere. What I've kind of concluded is that what's happening is, to use an analogy, that we're using the internet kind of like the Everest mountain climbers use their Sherpas. So this is a picture that I have, uh, this is a famous picture now, it made the cover of National Geographic. This is people climbing up to Mount Everest. This is the very final summit. There's literally a traffic jam up there. <laughs> Why is there a traffic jam up there? There's a traffic jam up there because Sherpas have carried people's oxygens up there. People who have no business being above 8,000 feet because they're not real mountaineers have managed to get up there because I mean, they're at Everest Base Camp right now they sell cappuccinos. I, uh, <laughs> I, at, uh, at the sort of height of it, they have ropes the whole way. So even if you don't have mountain climbing experience, you're just willing to you know, put the money for the guides and you have no thin air experience, you got your oxygen tanks being carried, not by you, by Sherpas. But once you're above 8,000 feet, and I started using this analogy like a couple of years ago, I started thinking through it like this, and then lots of people died on Everest. And I thought, should I like stop using this because it's such a grim thing? And I'm like, no, because lots of people have died in these Arab uprisings too. So I think it's actually the fact that it's grim uh, I thought about not using something grip, but right now a lot of my friends are in exile, a lot of my friends are in jail, so it's not a good place. So let's use the analogy. What happens is using the affordances of digital technologies, movements can go from zero to 100 very quickly. And they do this in this participatory manner in which they decide everything in assembly form and they have these you know, large meetings and very participatory meetings because that's what they want to do. But once you get above, above 8,000 meters, something goes wrong, you're in real danger. The fact that the Sherpas have carried your oxygen will not save you if you have no mountaineering experience in a crisis. So with these movement, what I think happens is they're participatory modes of being and their non-institutional background, which is a choice. This is not being forced on them by technology. This is something movements in the, around the world have been moving towards since the 68s. Since the 60s, they want to be participatory because of why they're protesting. But they couldn't really do it like that before because you still had to organize and hold meetings and do all of that stuff. But now you can. You can have Gezi Park protests from zero to a million people in three days. So this is sort of like, uh, and this brings a tactical freeze. Because how did Occupy make decisions after just coming to being, literally with, starts with an email, and then they occupy, and then uh, two weeks later, they're global protests. They try to have these assemblies, which are very participatory and in some ways affirming. But you can't have tactical turns which any movement needs to do because a government is going to eventually come for you and a government's going to learn how to respond to you. So what I see around the world in movements is a tactical freeze where the movement people keep trying to go back and do what worked the first time. The Egyptian activists, they kept trying to go back to Tahrir. In Turkey, they keep trying to go back to Gezi Park protests. Now compare this with the civil rights movement, which had to go from tactical turn to tactical turn to tactical turn as things change. And I don't want to create a very simplistic picture of the civil rights movement, but um, they did manage to have this decision-making capacity, despite their internal, you know, so it wasn't like, oh, Martin Luther King just decided and everything was fine, but despite their internal uh, conflicts, they managed to take these turns. And I think partly because um, 
what they had to do to get where they were. So if you consider the 19, um, the 1950s from you know Montgomery Boss Boycott, to get that thing going, to get the word out, they had 68 organizations that crisscrossed the whole city. And that was the the, by the time you get to day one of the protest, of the boycott, you had this massive infrastructure. Whereas currently, today's protests, they they, today's movements start with the protest, and then they build out. So when you look at the March on Washington, right, you're looking at a decade of movement building and preceded by six months of massive organizing, uh, headquartered in Brooklyn. It was this massive organization. Whereas when you look at the Giza protests, you're looking at the day one of that movement. So March on Washington is day year, year 10. And Giza protests is day one. The Tahrir protest was like month two. Uh, those are very quick uh, things. And what I've, I'm not saying, oh, let's go back to you know, hand doing everything by the mimeograph. But I started calling this, I made up a term, I keep making up terms because I don't have a concept for it. I started calling this network internalities to say that the process of doing something together over that long period, even though it was tedious work, and it looks great, we can do the tedious work by hashtag. And I'm all for using that hashtag, but if you think about it uh, organizationally and sociology of that organization, using that hashtag is giving you that narrative capacity. But doing it the old way as a side effect gave you this organizational capacity and a way of doing things together. When you hit that 100 miles an hour curve, you kind of had the steering wheelie thing, which the current movements have no steering wheelie thing to make those turns. So when you think about, start thinking about this uh, from a signaling theory point of view, in biology, we have these things where animals do that are kind of crazy. Like um, some animals will do, they call starting. Like if you're chasing uh, a gazelle and you're big bad lion or wolf, it'll just jump up and down very high. Like why are you wasting your energy jumping up and down? It's signaling its fitness, right? It's saying, I'm gonna run really fast, so don't bother. Yeah, it's an honest signal of its strength. But of course, you know, biology and coevolution, there's fake signals. Um, you know, some snakes, get the same kinds of colors as the poisonous snakes, even though they're not poisonous. That's a fake signal. If it's almost like our social movements, they jump up very high like before, but they have springs, the internet springs on their feet and they jump very high. And to give an example that's gonna kinda go to the heart of the Sopa Pipa uh, activism that a lot of people think as a success of the internet, where there was going to be this horrible legislation passed and there was the Google and Tumblr and everywhere changed their front page and said, we protest this, lots of blogs went dark-minded too, and Congress people got inundated with calls because if you went on to Google, Google said, here, let me connect you to your congressperson, and you got to call them, and all of a sudden they got 15,000 calls, whereas they <coughs> normally have 15, and they freaked out and changed their mind overnight, and that's seen as a success, yes, but I think that's legislatures not being able to read the signals. We, we were able to give a false signal, this Google elevated uh, signal that wasn't really going to turn into a primary challenge, right? So normally if you get 15,000 phone calls, that's a primary challenge. Normally if you have a million people in the street, that's an electoral challenge. But with today's protests, I think governments have learned 
that it's not necessarily that signal, right? This evolution, coevolution of governments. And what they have also learned is that they can counter with the same methods by focusing on this narrative capacity. They used to censor, and they don't really censor as efficiently now. What they instead do is they drown you in information. You can't tell what's what. Uh, in China, there's a really great paper that came from Gary King and Jennifer Penn and a few other authors. They've demonstrated what they do with the 50 Cent Army is distract as much as try to censor important stuff because what you want to do is you, you they got this, my point here is governments really adapt. If you have this narrative capacity and you've got this, I'm going to make this the a focus of attention in this country. What governments have learned to do is I'm not going to be able to censor this. If I censor it, people will circumvent. But what I can do is I can just create some, you know, uh, other thing here and I can question the credibility of what's going on. So right now, 2016, I've got social media, I've got tons of friends in Turkey, internet's not caught. I can't tell what's going on half the time, especially in the Kurdish Southeast. I'm almost back to the way I was under the military regime, despite cell phones in a million people's hands in the region. Because every claim is met with, oh, it's a hoax, there are actual misinformation, um, there is the way that there are so many challenges to credibility and drowning in information that it's, we're once again back to not being able to tell what's going on and paralysis in a way that's very different from the past, but it still has the same effect. Because if you're in power, all you need to do is paralyze people and confuse them or create enough challenges to credibility. So um, when you look at it from capacity and signals, it also makes sense to understand what happened with the Hong Kong protests when they started happening. They looked very much like Occupy. They set up a library. They were very colorful, all sorts of things. And then I watched over the few years, a uh, few months, as the Chinese government kind of kept getting the tension down, try to sort of slow and kind of ignore as much as possible. And there were some instances with pepper spray and tear gas that got a lot of people upset. But there were these weeks in which very little happened because I believe that they're one of the smartest governments in learning how do you diffuse this? Because if you understand the signal, if you look at it as a capacity and signal, you realize that's not going to over, it's not the end of 10 years of organizing. It's the first moment of a movement. The best strategy is distract, wait it out, and let that sort of internal participatory mode kind of drown itself because people start bickering among each other. And without having had 10 years of working together through this agreement, they can't do a tactical change when the occupation kind of runs to its natural end after a month or two or three, there's no tactical change. So I think that's where we are, is that movements have these great capacities, so narrative capacity, disruptive capacity, but it comes as this major weakness in that you lose the decision-making and tactical electoral capacities, institutional capacities. And I'm not going to have an answer, but I'm just going to say that a lot of movement people around the world I talk to are discussing exactly this. How do we gain something? And it's not just as easy as telling them to start voting in their meetings instead of participatory meetings because, once again, they're protesting because they feel so much distrust in institutions. So you can't just say, all right, do it the old way, and you can't just sort of lecture people about 
you know, use rule, Robert's rule of rule. And that's not going to work. They, it has to be something indigenous to this political culture. <coughs> but rebuilds that institutional capacity and tactical decision making and shifting ability, also countering the fact that governments can now fight back. The way I like to say it is that internet is not like Thor's hammer, only the purest of art can pick up. Uh, as we have seen again and again, uh, governments and the powerful have figured out how to use it, including in Turkey and other places, and we can discuss the coup maybe in the question and answer, uh, too. And they're not just using it in the old way. That's, I think, important to realize is that they're countering current capacities with current answers. And that's why it's working, I think, around the world where you have <coughs> this growing authoritarianism that is also digitally fueled. And I will sort of leave it there and open Excellent. up with questions. That was fantastic. Thank you. So uh, we have about 20 minutes for questions. Preference for students. Anyone want to start with a question? Um, my name is Usha Ramdan and I'm a Fulbright faculty fellow uh, at Santa Coastal at MIT and CMS. Um, I really liked your point about the point of the protest being the participation. Because recently in, in India, we've had two major campus protests. One um, in my university in Hyderabad, the other one in Delhi. And um, for two weeks, the campus was held pretty much by the students. And finally, it broke up. The university just waited and watched and anticipated. Um, when the students came back to the classroom, um, many of us found that um, they were sad uh, for two reasons. Uh, One, because the excitement of being mm -hmm. in the protest had um, gone away. And the second was that they didn't know where to go mm -hmm. from there. Yeah. And um, so we found that um, you know, this was an opportunity for us to talk about tactics mm -hmm. rather than protests. But you know, there is no rule book on that when, when the protest is well, you know, from the ground up. Um, so what is, how does the social movement then learn if it is spontaneous mm -hmm. of, of the kind that uh, the ones that you spoke of? Um, how do we then use this as a learning movement moment if you are in the position to actually speak to protesters when they're listening? Right. So, um, what I believe is happening is, well, of course, they're not going to just take my word for anything. <laughs> but what I believe happening is that around the world, there's been this two waves. The, there was the, starting with 99 Seattle, there's been the sort of wave of uh, WTO and all these big summits. And then we had the Arab Spring, Occupy, Gezi, Hong Kong, all these things. There's been these two waves that have kind of had a similar boom-bust trajectory. And I think there's been a lot of learning from it. And if you look at it now in the United States, take the Occupy movement, when it sort of kind of ended exactly the same way many others said, the energy dissipated and there was no know-how on how to do the next tactical thing, the idea of any electoral institutional politics was seen as this betrayal and you couldn't do it. And social media complicates it because this is what the 70s, 60s people have discovered too. If you have no formal leadership, you have informal leadership that is driven through the attention economy of social media. It is very destructive because you have people without the legitimacy of having been formal leaders, but in who 
appear as de facto spokespeople. And then all the jockeying to be the spokesperson happens on social media. It's very vicious. And a lot of things I didn't get to. So it's been destroying movements. So right now, because of those experiences, I think a lot of people that I kind of follow from the Occupy movement are right now very open to a lot of them work on the Bernie Sanders campaign. Some of them are now working in Hillary Clinton's campaign, even though they're not terribly, f to say the least, they're, they're Occupy people, but they're kind of like, all right, we don't do this. So there's been this more instrumental view of looking at that, which is one thing that's going to happen. Um, the other thing is in some places like Greece and Spain, people just broke off and said, we're forming a political party. And it turned out there was actually great demand for it. But the problem with that is, and you know, Donnie's in the uh, room, it's the global, the trilemma of globalization. It's very hard to do anything at the national level per se. So Spain and Greece are struggling with this, you know, we're at the national level, how do we do? So in an ideal world, if you want to sort of think about social change, what would next happen is that the globalization from below would also have its tactical moment at a global level because pretty much all the challenges you're facing, these movements are animated by inequality, financial issues, climate change. They're kind of hard to address at the nation state level. So, I mean, in fact, I think, you know, sort of to step back, I think that's at the heart of this great global distrust is that nation state politics have become less and less powerful to hold accountable these powers that have escaped uh, national jurisdiction, right? They're almost like this extraterritorial corporations floating about nation state. And as people don't find ways to engage them, they've become more and more distrustful of nation state politics, which feeds on itself because then they stop voting and they stop believing everything. It just gets even worse. So the way out of it is if there can be something like that. Now that's really pie in the sky. But I have to say, compared to like five years ago, when I talked to a lot of actors around the world, there's all these efforts to also find technological ways of having participation, but have it have an end so that you're not in an assembly meeting forever and then you know anybody with something to do leaves. Uh, new ways of voting, uh, mixing online and offline platforms. So there's just a lot of energy the question is this distrust and mistrust keeps getting people to want to go back to the occupation of the university, which is existentially very alive, and the tedious work, which in the past you kind of did because you had to. And now you can't really tell people, don't use a hashtag, just meet every night just so you get to know each other because nobody's going to do that. So that's the challenge. How do you convince people to build organizational capacity when they don't really need it to do you know, nine-tenths of the things they actually need to do. Arka? Yeah, uh, thanks very much for the really interesting talk. Um, a little point and then a bigger point. The little point is that a bunch of the the movements that we all romanticize were also very participatory. They right? were. So take Francesca Paletta's book, the title yes. of which is Freedom is an Endless Meeting. Endless. Um, <laughs> which was about the civil rights movement and women's movements. And she's wrong. Freedom is not an endless meeting, but that's a <laughs> different conversation. That's the little point. The bigger point is it may be that the phenomenon that you're looking at right now, um, which combine three different elements that you point out. One is the digital affordances, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then the second is the assembly democracy mm -hmm. piece. And the third is the total distrust of existing mainstream political mm -hmm. institutions kind of go together for a package that makes for very powerful 
in another group that I'm in, very powerful digital moments that re really never amount to a, mo a movement or sustained change. Um, I guess I think that's partially because of the time we're in and partially because of your selection bias in picking out movements that are especially internet driven mm -hmm. and empowered, right? So I think if you, if you were to roll the tape forward a little bit, what you'd see, it, what you will see, I think, is social movements that are more sustained uh, because they combine some of the affordances of digital technology with real organizing. Um, and you can see some of that already if what you begin with is social movements that happen to use technology rather than technologically steroided mm -hmm. up social movements. So if you take the LGBT movement, mm -hmm. which has been very successful and very sustained, or the Dreamers, right, mm -hmm. which have affected some real change, mm -hmm. it's not that they don't use the internet. Right. They, of course, do. It's just that they don't use it for a Tahrir Square right. kind of end, right? And so a different starting point may put your lens on different social movements that may give you an eye toward more successful hybrids mm -hmm. in the future. And then um, even some of the ones that you do like Occupy, I think, through the narrative power, it's true that I, I completely agree that that was a moment, not a, not really a sustained movement. But it did have all of these ramifications in the living wage campaign and Hillary Clinton's support of mm. really elevating the minimum wage and Barack Obama's embrace of the inequality yeah. discourse in 2012. All right, so a um, bunch of great points. So with the Paletto book, I think the title is misleading because she talks a lot about how empowering the participatory process is. So, I mean, I think she's, like, I kind of feed off that point is to say, let's not dismiss the participatory thing because it also amounted to a lot of buy-in from people, you know. The, the, the participatory thing means that you don't feel like you're in the same, say, electoral situation that led to the distrust. So I, I think, you know, the title is kind of, it is a striking title. <laughs> um, now, with the protest, um, I'm looking more at the true, the digitally fueled ones. And that, I think, is the, the striking thing, is that they were able to go from zero to 100. Whereas the LGBT movement is a great example of this. It's almost like this Gramscian movement, right? It's this long-term... Uh, counter-hegemonical thing, and they've used social media for visibility a lot. They've used a lot of cultural things, but they also use organizational things. So it would kind of be on my list of very smart movements in terms of combining those things. Um, <coughs> the issue there is the, to be that, to be that kind of hybrid movement, you have to have some trust that your multi-pronged approach is going to get you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And what I a lot of, see in a lot, especially a lot of young people, is that they don't have that trust. So the LGBT movement, you know, they, there was a lot of Facebook campaigns. There's a lot of, you know, the gay-straight alliances, which are visibility things in high schools, which is a great strategy. But they also went to courts. And they also elected things. So with a lot of these sort of coming onto the scene, these movements, to give you an example of the mindset, so I'm talking with 2011, I'm talking with Egyptian, Tunisian, and a bunch of other North African activists, also Syrians, and they're like, we're going to boycott these elections. It's the very first election. I'm like, you've never voted in an election. Where on earth did you get the idea that you should boycott the first election? <laughs> they were like, if elections led to anything, they'd be illegal, and they could, they said, there's these things. Now, what has happened? And I was really striking. I try to say, look, you know, there's all this literature, 
And for the country, for the Egyptians, they're going to vote for the first time. They're not going to boycott this. And if it's only the Muslim Brotherhood, that's not going to be great for the country because there's the military threat and you got, you know, all the things that have since happened. Um, they had, through this cultural global diffusion of protest culture, they had internalized the elections don't work thing. And I know how it happened. I know these people. I know the networks they travel in, right? Because this, and this globalization from below is not some virtual thing that is on the internet. These people, because of travel, have been, me too. I've known people in this movement for, you know, since the Zapatistas. I literally ran into a friend I had met in Chiapas in Gezi Park protests. I like, like, oh, excuse me. In Tahrir Square, I ran into, you know, tour developers and Laura Poitras. And I, <laughs> and, and I mean, like, you know, you're walking, you say, excuse me, and it's that person. There's been this very significant interpersonal connection. When I say these movements don't have organization, people take it to me and it's just all virtual and there's no interpersonal contact. There's very much interpersonal con contact. What it has done, though, is this diffuse this culture of mistrust without building the kind of decision-making. I keep coming back to decision-making as this key thing because that's what you need for tactical change. Um, so will those movements adapt the tactics of the success more successful ones that, as you point out, build organization? I think there the trick will be not how they use technology because they all use kind of similar things, whether or not they re-instrumentalize their mistrust to say, okay, I don't trust this but I'm gonna see what can be done in this path. Because if they don't do it, that's it, it doesn't get anywhere else. So that's kind of a very short answer to a bunch of great We're things. Marshall Anacrity. Uh, Marshall, again, I, I teach you. I've been a great fan of your work. Oh, thank uh, you. For a long time. I've been a great fan of your work. I'm just <laughs> embarrassed <laughs> now to hear that. No, I, I really appreciate your focus on the question of capacity. Um, in, in my years in the farmer group movement, we conceptualized that to get from relationships over here to meaningful action over here required three capacities. One was a narrative capacity. You had to have a story. But the second one was strategic capacity. Mm -hmm. You had to be capable of, of constructing strat strategy yeah. over time so that you could choose what actions to take and what tactics to involve. And thirdly, structural capacity. You had to have a structure so those relationships could turn into uh, mechanisms of coordination, decision making, and all the rest of it. And and it seems like it's hard to get to the strategic capacity without the structural. And so then you wind up back here, which is the situation that I think you described. And and this impulse to resist structure. I mean, I I think it goes back to the Exodus. I mean, I think yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, or, I agree. Or the Reformation. I mean, because when you when you're uh, a social movement, you experience structure as oppressive, and that's what you're resisting. Mm -hmm. And you conflate oppressive structure with any structure. Mm -hmm. And so then you wind up in this freedom from, rather than what you need to do to enable freedom to, mm -hmm. which is design your own structure that's capable of uh, enabling you to strategize and so forth. And that depends in turn on a relational capacity, uh, as well as, you know, crossing that threshold. And, and with you, I, I think crossing that threshold is a critical question yeah. of how, and I think long-term success for any social movement depends on figuring out how to do that. Right? I completely there agree. Are just two small other things. Joe Freeman's piece, The Tyranny of Structuralists, Absolutely. should be required reading by everybody, 1972. Uh, I send it around a lot. <laughs> and I was meeting with Peter Staley this morning who was involved in ACT UP, 
that said one of the things ACT UP did right at its beginning was adopt Robert's Rules of Order, believe it or not. <laughs> well, I believe that, that, yeah. Sort of blew me away. But, uh, and so we distinguish sometimes between mobilizing and organizing, and this mobilizing is happening but without the organizing to enable it to become strategic and sustained over time. So I, I really appreciate the way that you've gone at this. Thank you so much. So I want to show one, I mean, I'm just kind of blushing and embarrassed because I'm such a fan of yours. <laughs> uh, I have, I usually show this slide of these people mimeographing and doing all this tedious work. It, uh, it's my current contention that that tedious work as a byproduct, even in places where people resisted structure, brought some of that relational capacity. And if you had to organize the Montgomery boss boycott and you had 100,000 people who needed carpools, well, you met every night. It sucked. But it meant that you learn how to make decisions together, which brought this tactical ability to strategize over long term. And I believe movements who don't need to do that, it's almost like you ate some food and then it gave you the vitamins you needed and you now don't need the vitamins, but you actually need the food. It's something that, um, th because the thing is, a lot of the criticism to these movements have come from saying, oh, the online stuff doesn't matter, which is not true. It absolutely matters that you can change narrative. It absolutely matters. I think slacktivism is a very difficult term because it just makes the young people go, no, because if I can tell my 100 Facebook friends what I think, it matters. In fact, if you look at like my own research, I, we did a survey of 1,000 protesters in Tahrir Square. If you look at it, the people who showed up first we're more likely to be on Facebook and be on Twitter. Like the people who show up on the very first day are the social media empowered people. And why does that matter? Because with any protest, the first day or first two days is very significant because the government is a resource constrained actor. Mm -hmm. Are they gonna crush you or is there 5,000 of you? In Tahrir, every year before January 25th, there's always been a protest. It would be 100 people and it would be surrounded by tanks. I've seen some of the pictures, and you'd go like, you know, and then there'd be police, and then some days, some years, you'd be allowed to shout a few slogans, some years you'd be arrested. On 2011, one of the things, one of the uh, people I interviewed who'd been to the previous ones, he said, I didn't think anything was gonna happen. And there are two kinds of protesters, the ones that are always thinking revolutions tomorrow, and the ones that think it'll never happen, right? <laughs> it's very hard to time these things. And he said he didn't think anything was going to happen. And when he went there, he said it was different. I knew the government wasn't going to be able to arrest us all because my Facebook friends were there. What he meant was his weak tie networks had gotten activated. And when there's 5,000, all of a sudden the government shows up and doesn't have, like, what do you do with 5,000? They all have cameras. That can snowball into 100,000. So I don't want to come and say... No, that doesn't matter. What I want to say is that if you got to that in three days and you haven't done this other stuff you need to do, the fact that that's powerful isn't going to save you when the government figures out how to respond to you, which mm -hmm. it will. Yeah, so thank you so much for this. This has been wonderful. Um, so I come out of a social activist background, but I'm here studying policy because there is some faith that I have in government doing the right thing. Um, so I wonder if you could speak more to the uh, electoral distrust. Yes. Um, and especially like strategies that you think could be employed when working in activism to kind of combat that. I'm in Nico's class right now. We had a, a guest speaker, uh, Yuri Meyer, who spoke on one project that the federal government's doing where um, in policy making they're getting community input. And so is it maybe 
access to decision making, um, greater transparency? So, so I mean, I'm going to go back to the structural problem in that the nation states have kind of, I mean, there's a lot of research, but you don't need research, right? They're responsive to rich donors. Uh, nothing. It's so hard to get anything happening on inequality and climate change because those are kind of global problems. Mm -hmm. So there is a, so I think it's a lot more, I'm all for, you know, let's click it and fix it, you know, call for potholes. <laughs> all, I'm, I'm for it. Like, there's nothing wrong with it, but that's not going to cut it because what these people most of the time are not looking to find some way to be personally empowered to fix a pothole. Mm -hmm. There is these great, and we're in this interregnum that we have all ways of ruling. I mean, I, I'm i sorry, our elites, sometimes I feel like they're sleeping on the wheel. It's like there's a lot of things that are coming at us very fast, mm -hmm. and we don't have the kind of response they would deserve. And we have seen, as a result, a lot of sort of this authoritarian, I'll fix it kind of, tendencies rise up because people are looking for this answer. And so if you don't solve the structural problem, I think with policies that bridge that national, international, national, global thing. And so we sometimes go back to young people say, you know, just get involved in your city council, which is fine. But they kind of know or environment, the climate change, recycle, fine. I recycle. Where, what does that get us? So the policy has to meet the challenge of the nation state becoming much less responsive to the people, partly because these you know, global forces and globalization and all of that have created these structures, and partly because day-to-day -day politics has gotten captured by the people who have the money for the lobbyists and all of that. Um, there's, I don't need to sort of cite tons of research to show that. So I feel like the response isn't just to encourage people, but to formulate some policies that people could get involved in, but go directly at the structural problem rather than something local and small as if that's gonna because I see a lot of that response and what happens is people go and like I can fix this but it doesn't make them feel like the world is going to a better place which is this dislodging and I don't have an answer to what exactly those policies could be mm -hmm. but with like the minimum wage the $15 minimum wage is a whatever else you think of it it's kind of that kind of uh, attempt to create something that is um, structural not just individual or yes please i loved your talk everything about it really resonated with me but i've always seen kind of these these big spikes as actually capacity building activities mm. um that they're not like yes they don't always achieve the ends but you don't look at like occupy as right. like that right right as the totality right. of the movement and the action but actually that was a huge capacity building element and then there's this creative destruction as it falls apart and then okay. there's a new thing that comes up but the actors are still there and they reorganize in new ways and they kind of know who the bad actors are so, so do you see that or yes no? Yes and no. Okay, so here's the thing. One thing I do want to say is that I first thing I want to say is let's not look at, say, Occupy or Gezi like the March on Washington. One is the beginning of a process and the other is the culmination of a protest. So, um, so we shouldn't expect the same thing often. I try very hard not to use the word failure. Uh, but kind of the cycle. So I want to say that it's the first day of the movement and where the movement's going to go is a question because it just got started. And so in that, there's a great study of Tea Party protests. They looked at the 2009 April's, I think that year was 16. They, th th that's the beginning of the Tea Party movement, right? They're called and they say, let's have a tax day protest. 
and they uh, call it nationally, which means it's a great field experiment because some of them are going to get rained on. Right? So they followed uh, who got rained on and who got sunny, and they looked at every locale for capacity building. They didn't use that language, but they're looking at, you know, did the incumbent get voted out? Did it go this? Did... Well, it turns out that in places that got rained on, there's significantly less capacity because people just that day did not get to meet in person. So that's an argument for this long-term capacity building, as you say. The counter to this is, if you are doing your capacity building in Egypt in 2011, you don't have 10 years to slowly build that capacity because the government is going to come at you and come at you very fast. It's almost like being a Silicon Valley startup that gets very big, but there's no venture capital to save you, and there's a military waiting to take over the country. So the fact that they get so visible with this big target on their you know, whole thing especially in semi-repressive places, just creates this incredible opportunity for the repressive forces to slash them very hard. because they, So there's this timing temporal mismatch. Whereas in a place like US, I think with Occupy, we've really seen genuine movement building that is happening. And the reason I say let's not judge it like the March on Washington is that because if you look at it as day one, then you don't say, why don't you do this in day two, right? So, but you just have to understand what its strengths and weaknesses. And I, mean, I, no matter who you're a fan of in the Democratic primary, a 74-year-old self-described Democratic Socialist, <laughs> who, I, you know, you may like him or not, but he's not even that good a speaker. He just has the same speech. He came within, like, he came close to beating a very institutionally powerful candidate um, that's real capacity, and the way the that was organized was a sort of semi-occupy. They had this huge slack that was volunteer-driven, and they just created organization. This wasn't Bernie Sanders' organizational genius. It was the occupy experience shaping how they did it, and how close they came. Considering, you know, who would have put you know money on Bernie Sanders as the you know in two years ago? So, yes, I agree. But governments, you, so when you analyze this evolution, coevolution, governments aren't going to sit on their hands. They're going to figure out how to counter you. Right now, something I didn't talk about, this verification crisis, there's no way to verify social media information. Russia, Turkey, Egypt, I see other places, they've literally figured out how to drown the public sphere in so much information that you know, like the fact, it's the new censorship. Um, it's just one example of this, the new modes of power, counterpower are here. Uh, so part of my analysis is like, yes, they're on day two. On day three, the lion's coming to eat you, and you're still sort of trying to figure things out. Uh, as you well know, of course, um, Thor's hammer could be reprogrammed so that only the purest of heart could pick it up. And the vendor of the hammer mm -hmm. is one of a handful of companies that you write about and call the carpet quite frequently. And it makes me wonder if you formed a view, if you were CEO of one or all of those companies, presuming no competition on the horizon so that what a Twitter might do affects microblogging mm -hmm. at large, what a Facebook might do affects that kind of social media at large. 
Um, would you want these companies to wake up and say, we believe in an ethical world, we have certain values, and those values will be reflected in an acceptable use policy, or are they better thought of, especially given their very power, as yeah. we shouldn't decide. The Sherpas should carry anybody up that wants to go up the mountain, and we shouldn't be judging. Uh, and, and maybe with a middle zone, uh, you could say there's things that have to do with integrity of the service they offer that aren't exactly ethical, but as you've tangled with WikiLeaks, for example, fine, we'll try to prevent sock puppets. If we're a non-anonymous service, we won't allow anonymity right. or we'll pierce it. You know, you can see things that yeah, can lots be described of things, so. technically. But should these companies be ethical and then make judgments that will, by their compass, exclude or not, depending on... So you ask such a tough question because, I mean, my impulses would be yes, but the history of the world is littered with such impulses leading to horrible stuff, right? The kind of unintended consequences are so, like, you look back in history and you think, oh, great, what could go wrong? And mm -hmm. you see everything go wrong. Now, the thing, and the scenario you describe is kind of where we are. I mean, Twitter, Facebook, especially Facebook, is without competition for the foreseeable future, especially for social movements. Um, so the part that bothers me is the same tactics we hate, and we had these discussions that we call... Um, you know, trolling, or we call the sea lining, are the tactics that movements use. Like the Egyptian dissidents also use those tactics, and now they're being used by white supremacists, right? They're finding that the tactics are similar. So should Twitter go in and say, we're not gonna let hate speech? <laughs> Do you wanna, <laughs> like it's, I wish I had an answer in my backpack. Like my inclination is that by uh, there's certain affordances that you build in like pseudonymity that if you don't intervene really empower um, negative forces. This is my, I actually, uh, in my honesty, I wrote this in 2011, 10, when they were having all these Facebook real name policies and before we had the Twitter abuse problem. Uh, I wrote that I don't want Facebook to force anybody's legal name on there. Like, this is horrible. And I was against it. And this is not a thing. But I said um, that pseudonymity is actually a disadvantage as an ecology for a social movement because the governments will come and infiltrate that space, and horrible people will come and infiltrate that space. So, real name spaces may be more empowering to activists as an ecology while also disempowering them as a person because you're tar painting a target yourself. So I wrote this before the Twitter abuse thing, so that's kind of my current position is like that. If you allow pseudonymity, you're basically allowing sock puppets, astroturf, government inform Like we've seen a lot of cases around the world where the government comes in and creates this sock puppet army that pretends to be one movement and says horrible things, and then everybody points at them and says, oh look, horrible things. Uh, we had this huge discussion with the so-called Bernie Bureau issue where there were some pseudonymous accounts that were kind of being jerks and everyone was like, oh, this is the whole movement. And people got really upset because they're like, no, these are just a bunch of people. Do you even know they exist as a person? You don't, right? It really leads to things. So I think if you allow pseudonymity, you should at least say currently, like Twitter has this, got this Nazi side. 
and I wouldn't f lose sleep if they were harsher in making it harder for them to bother people. I probably would not say kick them off, but I would probably just very Twitter talking, sort of give people more tools to control their attention so these people didn't have a megaphone. I don't lose sleep. But given it's now run by people, founders, in 10, 20 years, it'll be all more corporatized. And then we're going to, you know, if we start losing free speech on these platforms because of all these dangers, what I know is going to happen is that what will happen when Disney buys it and throws off Black Lives Matter off the thing, right? Because you don't want to have people being upset with all these horrible incidents. And so my other impulse, and I like the octopus thing, and I'm guessing you're having these same discussions in your head, is that the unintended consequences are so hard to foresee that a light touch is recommended, but I think not throwing people off or not having um, hate speech provisions is, is an ethical decision. You are empowering one bunch of people. And another way we discussed this, I think we discussed this with you, is that they're disrupting other people's freedom to assemble. So they have a right to free speech, but don't people have a right to assemble without white supremacists and anti-Semites and racists bugging you, right? So I would like Twitter to do more to have my right to assemble if it's going to also protect their right to assemble and free speech. And I think that balance is completely off. Right now, you know, social media platforms, they're protecting their right to free speech, fine, but where are my tools to be free of having them bug me is a very complicated answer uh, that I will implement when I run all of Silicon Valley. <laughs> Sorry, it's really a tough one. Uh, I'm going to wrap us up there. Thank you, Zainab. Thank you. And uh, I hope to have you back soon. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Thank you.